38. Tonight I'm going to be teaching another message, Who is the Mysterious Woman in Revelation 17 and 18? And that's Mystery Babylon. And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. You know, Revelation 17 and 18 are some of the most difficult Bible sections of Bible prophecy to understand. But we're going to try to take a pretty good look at them in the 45 minutes that we have tonight to see what we can uncover and try to find the identity of this mysterious woman. You know, to set the stage, we need to recognize that a time of great distress is going to be coming upon the world very soon. This happens after a pre-trib rapture. Uh, at a time when men's hearts will fail from fear of what's coming. The Antichrist will come on the scene. He will try to make his mark on the world and ultimately rise to power as the world leader. But he will not be the first thing that mankind experiences. There will actually be a harlot world religion that will come on the scene. But during that time frame, in the immediate aftermath of the rapture, you're going to have peace will be taken from the earth. There will be world wars. It will be very chaotic. There will be uh, supernatural deception as Satan is no longer being restrained from lying signs and wonders. And, and he's going to, through that lawless period of time, the lawless one, the Antichrist, will actually be revealed by the super signs and lying wonders. There will be a time when uh, the supernatural will be the, the natural, the paranormal will be the new normal, and people won't be wondering if there is a God. They'll be wondering which God to serve. And there will be true Christianity, but true Christians in that period of time will actually be martyred for their faith. They'll be persecuted. And there'll be terrible bad teaching going on. There'll be two uh, different religious jeopardies coming to mankind after the rapture, and the first one is the harlot world religion. Now, most people, when they read Revelation chapter 17 and 18, they read them together as if Revelation chapter 18 gives more details to the events of going, that are taking forth, going forth in Revelation chapter 17. But that's not necessarily what we have going on here in the book of Revelation. Uh, it actually, I believe we've got two different judgments going on, one in Revelation 17 and one in Revelation 18. Uh, and here's a, a couple quotes I'm going to give you, one from John Wolverd, who... To, talks about these different judgments, these different ways to look at the book of Revelation. It's not necessarily written in chronological order. John Wolverd, here's what he says in his book called Every Prophecy of the Bible. He says, the book of Revelation was written in the order in which the truth was revealed to John, but the events described are not necessarily in chronological order. This is especially true of Revelation 17, which probably occurred during the first half of the seven years seven-year tribulation period, he writes that on page 603, and then he goes on to say on page 612, he makes the distinction, he says, actually the destruction of chapter 17, the judgment there, and the destruction of chapter 18 are two separate events separated by three and one-half years. So in other words, the first half of the tribulation, you have the harlot world religion, there'll be a destruction of that, then the system of the Antichrist comes in in Revelation chapter 18. We'll show another quote on that and lay that out on a timeline for you. Here's a quote by... Uh, sort of summarizes it equally as well by Dave Gusick in his book called verse by, uh, I think it's Verse by Verse Commentary on the Book of Revelation. He says, in my view, it is best to see them as intertwined yet somewhat distinct. Religious Babylon in Revelation 17, religious Babylon, is judged at the midpoint of the seven-year tribulation period. But commercial Babylon in Revelation 18 is judged at the end of that period. So they're making a distinction between the first and the second half of the tribulation and between Revelation 17 and Revelation 18. So let's, how does that play out on a timeline? Well, there's Pastor Tom Hughes right there. And he's, he's in the church age, as we all are right now. We're still in the church age. Uh, 
And then the Heavenly Father is going to say to Jesus Christ, go get your bride. And there's going to be a shout of an archangel, a sound of a trumpet, and the twinkling of an eye. Pastor Tom Hughes is going to go up. He's going to go up into the clouds, as with all of us who are believers in Jesus Christ. It's for all of us. But then we have what happens is there's a time gap period after the rapture before the tribulation. I've taught on that before, so I won't spend a lot of time on it. But it's not the rapture that starts the seven-year tribulation period. It's a confirmation of a false covenant with the Antichrist in Israel and another party. That starts the seven-year tribulation. So we have a gap that happens in the immediate aftermath of the rapture. We don't know how long it is. Some of us suspect it could be a couple years. But meanwhile, the harlot world religion, the counterfeit bride, is going to come on the scene and we find her story in Revelation chapter 17. We find out she sits on the Antichrist. She forms a relationship with the Antichrist who's starting to emerge to power, starting in this gap, and it carries over into the first half, the first three and a half years of the tribulation, which is what John Wolvert and David Gusek were saying. Then we have, she will be desolated. We'll talk about how that happens by ten kings. Then we have the Antichrist period of time, where he will have the mark of the beast scenario and he will force people to worship him. Uh, we, we pick that up in Revelation chapter 13. We'll show that verse in just a moment. So here's what we have. Mankind has double trouble. When we look at the chronological order of events that are going to happen, we're going to look at them a little differently. We're going to look at Revelation 17, the heart of the world religion. Then we're going to turn our attention to Revelation 13, the system of the Antichrist, and he gets judged in Revelation chapter 18. So 17, 13, and 18. This is the view I hold. Some people, again, say 17 and 18 are the same judgments, but uh, there are reasons I'll point out tonight why I don't think that's the case. So we find out in a brief summary, the harlot world religion, Revelation 17, verses 13, she forms an unholy alliance with the Antichrist and rules over the nations. Then we find that after she's overextended her usefulness, the ten kings will be on the scene at that time. They will hate and desolate the harlot and transfer their power to the Antichrist, that's in Revelation 17, verses 16 and 17. That happens in that gap in that first half of the tribulation. At the end of the first half of the tribulation, her, she's desolated by the ten kings. Then we have the Antichrist who comes onto the scene and rules over the world economy once the harlot is out of the way. They're together in the beginning. She sits on the beast. He carries her to her power. But ultimately, he, the ten kings work with the Antichrist to eliminate the harlot world religion. Then we have the Antichrist kingdom who is destroyed in one hour, in one day, and that is permanent, that is forever. That's in Revelation 18, 8, verses 10, 8 through 10, and Revelation 18, 21, we pick that up. So his system, Revelation 13, you're familiar with it, talks about uh, he causes all, both small, great, and rich, and poor, free, and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. So see how that's in Revelation 13. So his system doesn't even come into, into uh, fullness until after the harlot's gone, ten kings desolate her, then they give their power to the Antichrist, then we find his story in Revelation 13. And how is he judged? We find out in Revelation 18. So we're going to look at a few of the details of the harlot world religion, this mysterious woman, Mystery Babylon. She rules over many nations, we're told in Revelation 17, 15. She's headquartered in a great city. What great city could that be? We'll look at the candidate cities tonight. Uh, I've got the verses that show this. 
Uh, the city is located upon seven hills. There is a geographical clue for us, this great city. She panders to political leaders and is the religious opiate of the masses. We're told in Revelation 17 that, she, uh, that the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her and the inhabitants of the earth are the drunk, drunk with the wine of her fornication. And then I'll explain what that fornication means. It's spiritual idolatry is what they're talking about there. So this is what's happening with the harlot on the world scene after the rapture. A few more details. But let's talk about the fornication term for a minute here so you're clear on what we've got here. It's a false gospel. It's a counterfeit. It's not the real truth. So it says that the harlot with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Here's what the Strong's exhaustive concordance of the Bible, how that defines it. Uh, it's a short definition. It means to practice idolatry. The Helps Word study says it's to commit sexual fornication is sexual immorality figuratively, but to be unfaithful to Christ while posing as his true follower. Now, I like that definition. The harlot will be posing as a true follower of Jesus Christ, but will be unfaithful to him. will be teaching a counterfeit gospel, another Jesus. And so that's what I believe we've got going on there. The true bride has been taken out in the rapture. Now the counterfeit harlot comes on the scene and teaches a false truth, a false hope. A few more details. She's martyred believers in the past. So this is a blood, blood-stained religion. Revelation 17, 6. And there's a clue we're going to have to pick up in Revelation 18, 20. We'll talk about it tonight. It's a very telling clue. It'll help us identify the location of the great city. But we find out that the, it's a city that has killed two or more of the holy apostles in Revelation 18, 20. So we'll come back to that. But she'll be martyring believers in the future. Revelation 17, 6 says she's drunk with the blood of the saints and the martyrs of Jesus. Bloodstained hands from the past, bloodstained hands will occur again in the future. So it'll be a repeat performance. Uh, she's guilty of great crimes and sins in Revelation 18, 5. We'll look at some of those. She'll be hated by the ten kings, Revelation 17, 16. They will ultimately desolate her by the ten kings. And she'll be replaced by the Antichrist. This is all summations of Revelation chapter 17. I want to take a moment to talk about that Revelation 18.20 that two or more of the holy apostles had to have been killed under the sovereign rule of this great city. It says in Revelation 19.2 when Babylon is ultimately judged and it goes through the two judgments, for true and righteous are his judgments for he hath judged the great whore which did corrupt the earth with her fornication and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. Now when this happens, in the ultimate final judgment, we're told in Revelation 18.20, Rejoice over her, thou heaven and ye holy apostles and prophets, for God hath avenged you on her. So we're talking about the holy apostles that lived at the time of Jesus Christ. They are being vindicated now. When this, this whore, great whore is judged, that will give us a clue as to the city. It'll tell us that two or more of the holy apostles, this plural up there, must have been executed for them to be vindicated when this judgment occurs by the hands of the rulers of this city, whichever city we're going to find out that that is. What are the candidate cities? Well, some of you may be familiar with this. There's Mecca. That's a more recent one. Jerusalem. New York City. Rebuilt Babylon, Iraq. And Rome, of course, is the other one we'll look at shortly. Uh, let's look at these one at a time. Jerusalem, not as one of the more popular views, 
but it does merit an honorable mention. Uh, but we note that Jerusalem does not sit on seven hills. There's one strike against it right there. But probably the biggest issue that takes it right out off the list immediately is that when the, the major judgment happens in one hour on Babylon in Revelation chapter 18, on commercial Babylon, we hit, read in 18.21, Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence the great city Babylon shall be thrown down and shall be found no more. Shall be found. It will be gone. It has an expiration date. It will be over. Whatever great city we're talking about here. Now, that's going to be problematic for Jesus Christ when we look at John at uh, Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 17 talking about when Jesus comes to reign on the earth in the Messianic kingdom. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, and all the nations shall be gathered to it, to the name of the Lord, to Jerusalem. No more shall they follow the dictates of their evil hearts. So in other words, there has to be a Jerusalem. It has to be found again. If it's found no more, then uh, Jesus is going to have a real identity crisis. So we're going to rule out Jerusalem, and then we're going to move over to another candidate city, New York City. That's gained momentum lately. Uh, it does not sit on seven hills. Just Let's make a note on that, geographically speaking. Now, when the advocates for this theory say it's New York City, they will say, well, that needs to be interpreted as it's in the midst of seven continents. Well, let's take a look at the Greek word in the Strong's Concordance. It's oros. And it can mean mountains or hills only. It cannot mean continents. So that is a big stretch. It's not responsible for the deaths of two or more of the holy apostles, if Revelation 18.20 is a proof text for us on that. Uh, they weren't even alive at the time America was founded. So we're going to move away from there. We're going to look at Mecca. Uh, could it be the great city of the Mystery Babylon. Uh, this has been brought forward pretty much a new theory since 2008 with Wally Chubot and Joel Richardson. Uh, and he has a book out called Mystery Babylon, Unlocking the Bible's Greatest Prophetic Mysteries, at which point he says Mecca will be the great city and Islam will be the harlot world religion. He believes also in a Muslim antichrist. He's a good friend of mine. I really like Joel. We, we embarked upon a debate uh, recently about... No, actually a year ago in November, and, uh, and the debate was called Mystery Babylon. Is it Mecca or is it Rome, the great city? And I've got a few DVDs out there with me. A three-hour discussion, debate, tremendous research. If you are very interested in this subject, you will want to get your hands on this debate. In the debate, I mentioned a few things, three hours worth of things, but here's a few of them here in a summary. Actually, I had an hour and a half, so to be fair. Uh, they've never killed two or more of the holy apostles, and it does not sit on seven hills. So those kind of nullified the last two, uh, the last uh, New York City as well. But I also believe Islam's best days are behind it, because Allah is about to lose his Akbar, his greatness. Allah Akbar, when the terrorist blows himself up, he shouts Allahu Akbar, meaning Allah is the greatest or the greater God. Uh, but Allah's days are going to be short-lived at this point, because if you were here when I spoke last, I talked about the wars of Psalm 83 and Ezekiel 38. Now, Psalm 83 is an Arab war. The common, uh, there's a map up here. They, I call them an inner circle of countries. They share common borders with Israel. 
They're going to come against Israel. They're going to try to take the pastures of God. They're going to try to control the land of Israel. They're going to be defeated by the Israeli defense forces. And that is going to be a punch to the gut of Islam because those are 10 Muslim populations there. And they're going to be defeated soundly by the Israeli defense forces. And then after that, Ezekiel 38, which is drawing near as well, involves nine populations. There, there's an outer ring, I call them. You see a map up there. They're not in the inner circle. They're distinctly different. They're going to invade Israel for plunder and booty in the end times. So I believe these events happen sequentially and relatively in rapid succession, Psalm 83 and then Ezekiel 38. And God's going to stop Ezekiel 38. Now, like I said, nine populations, about eight of them are Muslim, entirely Muslim. And, and so that'll be an uppercut to the jaw of Islam. And these are the core areas of Islam. Now, it won't take Islam out of the picture. There's 1.6 or 1.8 billion Muslims in the world right now. But about 600, 800 million Muslims in the core part of Islam, in the Middle East and around there, surrounding areas of North Africa, etc., are going to be exiled, killed, imprisoned, it's going to do serious damage to Allah's integrity, right? He's going to lose his greatness. People are going to be questioning their God, Allah. And then, my, so I believe, and I believe those are pre-tribulation events. Shared that with you at the last talk. And so therefore, by the time we get to the tribulation, the seven-year tribulation, I believe Islam will be so severely compromised that Islam will be knocked out for the ten count. So I just don't see that Islam as a harlot world religion. And therefore, Mecca would not be the central city, the great city of the harlot world religion. There's another pretty popular view that it could be rebuilt Babylon, Iraq. A lot of people hold this view. It would be my second choice. I'm going to show you why I favor Rome. Um, and so, you know, there was a Babylon during the time of Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, Saddam Hussein was trying to rebuild it. He didn't rebuild it very much, but it's still there in antiquity value. Uh, it exists today as you know, a small little area. It's not really rebuilt, rebuilt to a great city, of course. So what are the problems with this argument, in my estimation? Well, first of all, we're talking about mystery, comma, Babylon. The mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. Now, a mystery in the New Testament is something that was concealed in the Old Testament that's going to be revealed in the New Testament. So let's just understand we have a mystery here. And it's going to be revealed to us by the angel... Now, you know, Jesus told us a mystery in Revelation chapter 1 about the seven stars and the seven candlesticks. And he revealed what it was. The seven stars are the angels to the seven churches, the messengers, the angels, and the seven candlesticks are the seven churches. And then we have seven letters to seven churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. So we, it was no longer a mystery. It was revealed. Paul tells us a mystery in 1 Corinthians 15 about when we get our new bodies. He says, we shall, we shall not all die, but we shall be changed in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye. It's a mystery, but he reveals it's when, you know, what happens in the twinkling of an eye. We get our bodies revealed, at the uh, new bodies, at the time of the rapture. So here we have a mystery. We need to figure out, well, what is, who's going to reveal this to us? And we find out that the angels talking to John will reveal this mystery to us. But it's not literal, it's a mystery. So we're going to harp on that for just a moment. So here's what happens when we talk about the mystery. But the angels... Revelation 17, 7. But the angel said to me, Why did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. Now John has, in Revelation 17, we see John has seen this woman sitting on many waters. Turns out to be Mystery Babylon, the harlot world religion. So he's seen that. And, and he's marveling. 
she's drunk with the blood of the saints and the martyrs of Jesus, and he's, he's awestruck, he's marveling. He says, why did you marvel? I will tell you. I will reveal the mystery to you. So the angel does that. He, he reveals the mystery not only to the woman, but the woman that was sitting on a beast. The beast carried her. The beast was involved with seven heads and ten horns. The ten horns stand out to be the ten kings that desolate the harlot world religion. He's going to reveal the mystery of all of them. But we're only going to pay attention to the mystery of the woman. Three key verses. So Revelation 17, verses 9, 15, and 18. Revelation 17, 9 tells us the geographic location of the great city. She sits on seven hills. Okay, So that's a very powerful clue of the mystery being revealed. She has a global reach because the many waters John saw her sitting on, we're told in Revelation 17, 15, represent peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. So she sits on seven, great, seven hills, and she's got a global, it's a worldwide religion that's going to happen after the rapture. And then we find out a really telling clue in Revelation 17, 17 18, that it's a great city. And it's, it's a city that reigns over the kings of the earth. So it's a great city located on seven hills as its headquarters. It's a world religion. That's revealed to us by the angel. And here's what he says, and the very telling clue about what city. So he's talking to John, the angel's talking to John, he says, and the woman you saw, he saw a woman sitting on many waters. That's past tense. The woman you saw is, now in John's present tense, that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. So John, what it is right now, the woman you saw in your past tense, is the great city that reigns over the kings of the earth. Now in John's understanding, that was Rome. It was clear to John that he was talking about Rome. That was the great city he saw. So back to Babylon. It's not a mystery. It never killed two or more of the holy apostles. It does not sit on seven hills. And if it were to become a great city, it will have to be rebuilt. I mean, it's a war-torn area in southern Iraq. And you know, I mean, some, some would argue, well, Dubai was built in a very short time as a great city. Well, that's true. So maybe this could happen but I, I just am favoring the argument for Rome over this one. And you'll see that I'm, there are many who do think it's Rome. So we're going to turn our attention to Rome, the eternal city, and the city of seven hills. That's what it was notoriously named for. Now there's several people throughout time in the church age who have subscribed to this being Rome. And you've got church fathers like Tantanius, Tertullian, Arrhenius, Jerome, Reformers like Martin Luther, John Knox, John Calvin, John Tyndale, John Wycliffe, and our contemporaries, many of our contemporaries today, Tim LaHaye, Hal Lindsey, Chuck Smith, Warren Wiersbe, Mike Gendron, Dave Hunt, David Reagan, Chuck Missler, Ed Henson, just to name a few, and there's many, many more. So, uh, you know, this is actually probably the more popular view that it is Rome for what that's worth. Sit on seven hills. This is what we were told in the clue in Revelation 17. Calls for a mind of wisdom that the seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. We've already talked about that at the time. Babylon, at the time of John, when there was Christian persecution going on by Rome, Babylon became a code word. If you were going to talk about Rome, you started using the word Babylon to conceal what you were going to say. And we even have that in New Testament scripture. 1 Peter 5.13, She that is in Babylon, elect together with you, salute with you, and so doth Mark, my son. It's commonly understood that Peter was talking about Rome there, disguising what, what city he was really talking about. You also had at the time, you had 
Roman coinage sitting with the goddess Roma lounging on seven hills. So this, this clearly was what was going on at that time. It was the city that reigned over the kings of the earth during John's time. Uh, there were two or more holy apostles that were killed by Rome, or the governorship of Rome. Uh, Peter, Paul, Andrew, and James. The apostle Paul was beheaded in Rome. The apostle Peter was crucified under the Roman Empire Nero. Also, there's historical evidence that the apostle Andrew was crucified by the order of a Roman governor. And the apostle James, the brother of the apostle John, was killed by a client king of Rome. So it meets that litmus test as well. The crimes and sins that it will be judged for. Uh, we look at Revelation 18.5, and I've got two translations up here. For her sins have reached unto heaven, referring to Mystery Babylon, and God hath remembered her iniquities. Another Holman Christian Standard Bible says it more clearly. For her sins are piled as high as heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. Okay? So let's look at Rome for that. Let's see what kind of a rap sheet they have. Rome had two time periods. You had pagan Rome during the time of the Caesars and the emperors. And here's what happened back then. They put to death God's son, the Savior, Jesus Christ. Martyred Christians for over three centuries, some sources like the spread of Christianity through persecution said at least 210,000 or more persecuted by pagan Rome. It was called pagan Rome. Killed 1.1 million people, mostly Jews, according to the Jewish historian Josephus, at 70 AD when the Roman Empire destroyed Jerusalem and tore down the temple, burned down the temple, Jewish temple. Destroyed that temple in 70 AD. Uh, it destroyed Jerusalem again in 135 AD during the time of the Bar Kokhba revolt and killed again hundreds of thousands of Jews during that time period. So it has bloodstained hands, crimes and sins, dating back to Jerusalem, to the death of Jesus Christ. Killed many Jews, killed a lot of Christians, uh, then ultimately the Roman Empire started to collapse. It found it favorable and politically expedient to embrace Christianity as the church of the state. So we get into now, we go into a papal Rome period. It was around the time of Constantine. And we look at the history of papal Rome, which is where the Vatican is now. And we have, they expelled all the Jews in Spain in 1492 at the time of Christopher Columbus. Many people believe he was actually a Jew and the ships were filled with Jews. Uh, he expelled all Jews from Portugal in 1497, pa pa Papal Rome did. Killed tens of thousands of Jews in the Crus Crusades. Killed thousands, hundreds of thousands of Protestants for hundreds of years during the Inquisition period. Called them heretics. Responsible for as many as 100,000 victims of sexual abuse in the United States alone. What about worldwide? You know, recently some of the nuns have been coming out, out of the closet saying we've been persecuted molested and by these priests. So there's a, a rap sheet on there, the crimes and sins of pagan morphed into papal Rome. So let's look at this verse again. The harlot who committed fornication, spiritual idolatry, has a Christian veneer, but is teaching a false gospel. Let's look at, let's turn our attention to if Rome is the city, then who is the harlot world religion that's going to be left behind to become the harlot world religion that's got a Christian veneer, pretends to be faithful to Christ, while is unfaithful to Christ while posing as his true follower. If that's what's being said there about the fornication of the kings of the earth and the peoples of the earth. Well, we're going to look at what the Catholic Church says about themselves. 
not going to try to bash the Catholic Church. I'm just trying to say, look, if this is the case, let's look at some of the evidences that could be presenting themselves. Uh, it says this is one on their website that it's the only church founded by Jesus Christ. So it's posing to be a true follower of Jesus Christ. Of course, it says we're the only church that was founded by Jesus Christ. The only church that gave the world the Bible. The only church that still has the sacraments instituted by Christ, mainly referring to at the Last Supper, the Eucharist, the Mass, the Communion. The only church whose leadership can trace its authority to Christ and the Apostles. They think Peter was the first Pope. Although Rome killed Peter. Uh, that was pagan Rome, though, not papal Rome. And it's the only true universal church on the earth with solid, unified doctrine and teaching. Okay, well, let's look at some of that doctrine and practices and dogmas that they're talking about. Veneration of the saints, relic worship, Mary worship, Marian apparitions, pray the rosary, confessional, purgatory. I'm still yet to find out where that is. I've asked Siri on Google, she just doesn't know. <laughs> Indulgences, if you want to get out of purgatory. Uh, transubstantiation, where Jesus' presence in the Eucharist and the Mass comes from the right-hand side of the throne of God when the priest beckons him to come, and he inhabits his physical presence, goes into the elements of the wine and the bread. It's more than just in commemoration, like you would do at this church. We take the, the communion to commemorate what Jesus did for us on the cross 2,000 years ago. And we're commended to do that. But they make it a magic and mystical experience. And they fault people who don't believe it that way. They think it's false teaching. Um, tradition above scriptures, inquisitions, we talked about that. The Immaculate Heart of Mary and the Assumption of Mary. They don't believe Mary died. So we're going to take a moment to spin off in the little bit of time i got left to talk about that. Marian apparitions, a phenomena, a true phenomena. They believe Mary, because she didn't die, has been showing up in the world in apparitions and leaving messages and doing healings and miracles and things like that. Not just recently, although there have been some relatively recently, but going back, there's a few of them, 1531, Guadalupe, Mexico. Our Lady of Guadalupe, they call her. She's got all kinds of different names. Um, 1858, Lourdes, France. 1917, Fatima, Portugal, the three shepherd kids. Um, they just recently celebrated the 100-year anniversary of that in 2017. Zaytun, Egypt, from 1968 to 1970. We're going to look at that one for a minute. That's two years of her showing up over a Coptic church, if, you know, whoever she is, uh, in Zaytun, Egypt. And then Merjigori was even in 1981, Bosnia-Herzegovina. Now, a lot of these apparition sites have been accredited as valid by the Catholic Church. And there's literally, I think, thousands of them. Not them all are accredited. But those are some of the big ones. And people make pilgrimages, Catholics make pilgrimages to these places. But let's talk about Mary for a minute, because we love Mary, Jesus' mother. Here's what she said. This, this is in Luke 1, verses 46 through 48, the song of Mary. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit is rejoiced in God, my Savior. She's acknowledging she's a sinner and needs a Savior. 
For he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. She considered herself lowly as a maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. And we do. I mean, blessed Mary, I mean, incredible. Mother of Jesus. So does Mary have an immaculate heart? Okay, now let's understand what that means. A sinless heart. She is without sin. Not because when Jesus came into her womb, she became sinless, but she was born without sin. She never had any sin. This is what was said by Pope Pius IX in 1854 dealing with the Immaculate Conception. Far above all the angels, now he's referring to Mary, and all the saints, so wondrously did God endow her with the abundance of all heavenly gifts poured from the treasury of his divinity that this mother, from the instant of conception, her con- you know, being conceived, ever absolutely is free of all stain of sin. So this is what he taught. She had no sin. This goes back to the Sacred Heart teaching of even St. Augustine, back in 354 to 430 A.D. Uh, Sacred Heart of Mary probably finds its early beginnings around the time of St. Augustine, who stated Mary was not merely passive at the foot of the cross, but she cooperated through charity in the work of our redemption. So you see, it was carried through the centuries, even back to the time of St. Augustine, idolizing Mary, pedestaling Mary. Um, so much so that they believe she's involved in our salvation or can play a role, a mediatrix role. Here's what Pope Leo said, the 13th in 1878. O Virgin Mary, most holy, no one abounds in the knowledge of God except through thee. No one, O Blessed Mother of God, attains salvation except through thee. Uh, He wasn't the only one who said that. Pope Pius X said that right afterwards who followed Pope Leo XIII. Just as no man goes to the Father but by the Son, so likewise no one goes to Christ, no one goes to Christ, except through his blessed Mother. O Virgin Mary, most holy, no one abounds in the knowledge of God except through thee. No one, O Mother God, obtains salvation except through thee. This is the church that says they've been the only source that have provided true sound doctrines to the world. So what happened was the Protestants started coming along saying, wait a minute, Mary acknowledged that she needed a Savior, though she was a sinner, and she died. And it tells us in uh, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Mary died. How can she be coming up doing Mary apparitions? How can she have an immaculate heart? How can she have anything to do with salvation? She was a sinner. So that became a problem for the Catholic Church. So they got around that, what they call papal infallibility. They can make dogmas. And whatever the Pope says, it stands. It becomes like, you know, it has to be acknowledged as a church doctrine. So here's what Pope Pius XII said in 1950. that the Immaculate Mother of God, the ever-Virgin Mary, having completed the course of her earthly life, was assumed body and soul into heavenly glory. So see how they got around that? She didn't die. She was assumed. And therefore, when she supposedly shows up in Guadalupe, in Fatima, and Zaytun, 
she can because she didn't die. Right? See how that works? Let's take a look at the Zaytun apparition for a minute because that was relatively recently. This is right shortly after the Six-Day War in 1967 with Israel when they took over Jerusalem. I write about this in my Apocalypse Roadbook. It says, For more than a year, starting at the eve of Tuesday, April 2nd, 1968, the Blessed Virgin Mary appeared in different forms over the domes of the Coptic Church, Orthodox Church named after her at Zaytun in Cairo, Egypt. The late Father Constantine Musa was the church priest at the time of these apparitions. The apparitions lasted from a few minutes up to several hours and were sometimes accompanied by luminous heavenly bodies shaped like doves and moving at high speeds. The apparitions were seen by millions, seen by millions of Egyptians and foreigners. Among the witnesses were Orthodox, Catholics, Protestants, Muslims, Jews, and non-religious people from all walks of life. Now get this. The sick were cured and blind persons received their sight, but most importantly, large numbers of unbelievers were converted to Catholicism. So see the, I mean, you know, this is a big deal. She's healing people, and she's showing up and claiming to be the Blessed Mother, Virgin Mary. And people are going, well, I'm convinced I'll convert to Catholicism. That's normally what happens at the apparition sites. There are healings and there are conversions. Here's some pictures. You can you should go on YouTube and check this out. Here's some pictures. They're not the best, but there's what they're talking about over the Coptic Church in Zaytun. They were seeing this. You see, see the crowds. They're just enamored by this. There's a picture up there in the upper right of Gamal Nasser. He was the president of Egypt at the time. He saw it. And you see another picture of her in a luminous light up there. Now, I didn't see Mary. I've only seen, you know, artwork of her and so on. But I don't know if that really looks like Mary. <laughs> but that's who they think it is. I think it's a demonic, divine being that's being set up by Satan so he can deceive the world. Well, here's a, here's a couple important messages given by the apparition. This is up in the Queen of All book, great book by Jim Tetlow, Roger Oakland, and Brad Myers. Highly recommend you read it if you're interested in these things. You can get it on Amazon. Um, here's what they say. Numerous healings and miracles have been reported at apparition sites around the globe. In addition, the apparition of the Blessed Virgin Mary has repeatedly announced that her most significant signs and wonders are yet future. There's more to come. Curtain calls. She admits that she has not revealed her full glory to the world and she predicts heavenly signs and wonders that the whole world will soon witness. Okay? 